you're listening to Privacy Files, the podcast that makes privacy approachable for businesses and consumers alike. This episode is brought to you by Anonymy Labs, makers of MySudo, the world's only all-in-one privacy app. And Sudo Platform, the cloud-based platform companies turn to for seamlessly integrating privacy solutions into their software. Welcome to episode number seven of Privacy Files. I'm Rich. And I'm Sarah. In our last episode, Sarah and I introduced the concept of surveillance capitalism by reviewing one of the most important documentaries on privacy in the last decade. Featuring Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff, author of the critically acclaimed book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Today, in part two of our two-part series on surveillance capitalism, Sarah and I will be reviewing perhaps the most well-known documentary on this topic, The Social Dilemma. It's a shocking look into how big tech attempts to manipulate and influence us, and it's told through the words of Silicon Valley tech experts. And to assist in our discussion, we are joined by Maddie and Chrisula, who will be providing us with a Gen Z perspective, two individuals who have never known a world without the internet. So I guess to start this off, I mean, this one was a pretty involved documentary, docudrama, however you want to call it. Um, a lot of mixed emotions. I, I guess the higher level piece of it is this is the attention economy. That's what we're talking about, right, Sarah? Right. And the more attention that big tech can garner from those who are using the platform, the more rich data they collect, and therefore they can monetize that by selling it to advertisers at a price that basically they guarantee that you will get a result. And so they, they know, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about this, but they literally can predict the future. Right. right? That's the scary piece of this. So it talks about how we like, we tweet, we share, but what are the consequences of our growing dependence on social media? So this, this documentary really is about reprogramming civilization. There's probably a little bit of hyperbole in it. I think you, you saw that as well. Yeah. As we we're talking about before we started recording, but nonetheless, there is somewhere in the middle that this does fall where it's kind of an addiction to people and this tracking is going on without people's awareness. I mean, we looked at that last documentary on surveillance capitalism with Professor Zuboff, and she talks about the key to this surplus data being collected is that behavior is being tracked without your awareness. So it's through obfuscation. So that's, I think that's one of the common themes here throughout this, the social dilemma uh, documentary that we review, that we're reviewing here. So they, they interviewed tech experts in Silicon Valley kind of found like a lot of them seem to be playing both sides, right? They used to work for the beast or the devil. And now here they are telling you where they're heroes. So I have mixed feelings about some of it, but in the end, I think the whole point here is as a privacy podcast, we're looking at the data component. They're collecting this rich behavioral data and they're using it not just to predict your future, but they're using it also to manipulate you. Right. I think sort of some of this and podcast will be opinions on the documentary itself as a whole, and yeah. then diving into the message they were trying to get across. And I think one of the main characters here, Tristan Harris, we were talking earlier, we're probably both aligned. <laughs> and I think this person was playing himself up more than he should be probably assigning more value to himself than he really should, should be assigning. You know, he talks like he's self-absorbed. He tells the story in the beginning where 
he was part of the Gmail team at uh, at Google, and he was fascinated by the fact that nobody was talking about the addiction component of Gmail. People are designing the notifications, all the things to keep you engaged in Gmail. Well, that's the point, right? That's the point of Gmail is to keep you engaged in the product. And so he talks about creating this presentation one day, two hours every night, the call to arms right, to get people right. all riled up. And then he walks into the office the next day and he acts like the entire office at Google is reading this presentation. Yeah, it's right. that good. It's so amazing. Uh, and then people start emailing him on and on. Yeah, right, Tristan, you're doing a great job. This is, we really need to change what we're doing here at Google. And then he says, it just fell on deaf ears, right? It went silent, right. nothing happened. It was shut down. Very convenient. Yes. And so they talk about how there's 2 billion people that have thoughts that they didn't even intend to have. And it's all because some designers, just a handful of designers at Google said, this is how these notifications are supposed to work on that screen that you wake up to in the morning. And at Google, we're supposed to have this moral responsibility to solve this problem. And I'm like, wow, but that's not the point of yeah. Gmail to begin with, right? It's not about having a moral responsibility for you not to be addicted to it. They want you to be addicted to it because that's the point of the attention economy. Correct. You have to be glued to it. So, you know, he mentions later that day, there's these 400 simultaneous users that are watching the presentation, looking at it. As I mentioned, he gets all these emails and then he's like, literally the quote was, I felt like I was sort of launching a revolution. <laughs> Maybe he feels guilty for his time at Google. So, with all that said, um, Sarah, let's go ahead and start off. What did you think about the documentary? What What are your emotions? Oh, man, I'm glad I had time to kind of calm down after watching this documentary. I'm a very opinionated person by nature. So when I'm passionate about something, so I could probably spend an hour just breaking down so many problems I had with this documentary. But one of the biggest takeaways from the documentary is how the AI algorithm can just predict what we will respond to and will give us what we want to see in order to keep us logged in and engaged. Basically, companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, and more are manipulating users into staying logged in as long as possible in order to monetize them. The documentary mentioned three main goals in these tech companies. They are the first one's engagement goal. They want to drive up your usage to keep you scrolling. Two is growth goal. Keep you coming back and inviting friends and more friends and more friends. And three is the advertising goal. As it's all happening, they're making as much money from ads as possible. So these goals are all driven by algorithms. That's sort of the gist of the documentary. Like you mentioned, it's this attention economy. So personal opinion on the documentary itself. This documentary came out in September 2020. And I think we can all agree that 2020 was just a year of high emotions. There was a lot of fear, a lot of political strife going on. And there was just this sort of divide beginning to surface. And it just kind of felt like a rampant, constant bombarding of information from every source and everything coming across our TVs and our screens was meant to fuel these intense emotions. So I just think this documentary added to that fuel. I think in 2020, I thought this was probably a great film. And now watching it almost three years later, I probably wouldn't recommend it anymore. But I found it very ironic that a film that warns incessantly about platforms using manipulation and misinformation to stoke fear and outrage, they did just that. It just sort of felt like stoking fear and outrage for 99% of this film. I'm also not sure if it taught us anything we didn't already know. It was just presented in this fear-based way with strange guys behind the algorithm simulation to create conversation, which it did, whether positively or negatively. So my honest sense about the doc overall, which I'll try to refrain from going off too far with personal feelings, but I agree with you, Rich. Tristan just kind of felt very self-absorbed. And I think he stems from a lot of what I didn't like about 
where the documentary went. So I can sort of focus on the good stuff that came out of it. But I think it's his stuff that sort of like got me riled up. But and even in interviews and after this came out and during this film, he spoke so much of conspiracy theories and misinformation and disinformation causing the chaos and the issues we see in the real world. And I just think when to me, when somebody uses those terms and they're labeling something like that, I think they're just shutting down the conversation, labeling someone crazy and it just sort of discredits someone for thinking for themselves or thinking outside of what we've just always been told to believe. But I just think it's important that when watching any documentary to look at who created it, who funded it, which platform is it being launched on? Because I just personally think a lot of documentaries on this big platforms are they're not entirely truthful or giving you everything you need to know. It's just very tailored. So take them with a grain of salt. But so Tristan's whole spiel he pumped out in the documentary and interviews just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But I did like the information. Probably the first half of it was really great, you know, just kind of learning about how they're doing and what they're doing and to get you addicted. So I sort of had some pros and cons. I like the pros that it shocked us into listening. I think that's something that's, you know, really big. It created public dialogue. It got people talking about the problem. And families could watch it together to create open conversations between parents and kids if they needed. Some of the cons, it made parents look like powerless bystanders. It just, that dinner scene where the 11-year-old girl just smashed the locked plastic container to get her phone out. And they're just kind of, parents are standing there like, oh, well, what can we do? You know, she's acting like she is. And I was like, if my kids ever acted like that, there'd be no phone and there'd be heavy chores and grounding and... I think kids shouldn't be given phones so young anyways, which is sort of a big problem in society as well. Kids have too much access too early. But another con was that I just also didn't feel like it offered a constructive roadmap forward. It just kind of felt like an hour and a half of doom and gloom. And then one good idea at the end of, you know, taxing the flow of data. Kind of liked that idea. But it was interesting to see how much psychology goes into these business models. Like you're in a class just learning how to help grow businesses and you're getting a crash course of psychology 101 into how to persuade and manipulate people into using your product. And I'm a psych major, though, so that stuff kind of always interests me. So overall, I can appreciate the angle of trying to inform people further of what's going on behind the scenes at big tech. But overall, with its fear mongering and cheesy take on this kid's phone algorithm, I probably wouldn't recommend this probably like something more, I, I preferred, you know, the Shoshana Zuboff we covered last time. It just felt way more informative. Yeah. So rough review from me, but what do you think, Rich? Yes, yeah, sir. There's definitely a lot to unpack here. Uh, I think social media, they talk about how it's designed like a slot machine. So you're always wondering what is that next positive reinforcement that's going to take place. They mentioned the chemical dopamine and how there's really science behind this. Same thing with the slot machine. You pull down the arm and you get a little bit of a win once in a while. And so that encourages you to put more money back in. You're the same thing. And the cycle repeats. Well, it's similar to those notifications that you get on the phone. You get something and you're like, oh yes. Or you see a like, somebody shared something, somebody tagged you in a photo. There's the psychological term that they used probably toward the middle, I think, of, of the documentary, which was a positive intermittent reinforcement. So there's there's actually a scientific term for this. And it's all part, it's what's underlying this attention economy. I have to keep people engaged. So you see uh, a little bit of an appearance here a couple times from Professor Shoshana Zuboff. We also was, uh, we talked about in our last review where she was featured in that documentary. And she says that every business has dreamed of a model where if they place an ad, it can be guaranteed that it will be successful. And that's the point of having this rich behavioral data. You've got this voluminous amount of data. You can plug it into the machine learning 
It figures out how to exactly predict what Sarah's going to be doing in the future. And you sell that. So you're not really selling the data. Technically, you're selling the prediction. Right. I think that's the, the key differentiator here. Yeah. And I think some of the psychology part that you were talking about that was interesting is like it's comfort. There's confirmation bias all over. Right. So confirmation bias is a human's psychological tendency to favor and focus on information that substantiates what you previously already believe. So by filtering my content to what I already believe or something that's guaranteed to pull some sort of emotion out of me and it just increases my engagement. I'm constantly exposed to my own way of thinking. It's a sort of a false sense that most people just hold the same values that I do. Yeah. And my, and my final thought kind of on this track is there's the quote that we now have markets that trade in human futures. And I just thought to myself, that's incredibly creepy. But it also assumes that you have no personal responsibility or any control over this, that these platforms are just dominating your life. So I guess what I would like to do is turn this over to Maddie and Chrisula and ask, you know, as, as two individuals who have never known a world without the internet, what do you think about this documentary overall? And do you feel like you have the power to put that phone down and to disengage? Chrisula, how about you first? Overall, I did think that the documentary was scary. And once I finally watched this, I remember looking back, you know, when it did come out in 2020 and I had all my friends saying, you know, you need to watch this. You need to watch this. And I really just did not want to watch it because they were all deleting their social media accounts or freaking out about it. And for me personally, I cannot live without my social media. So it was almost one of those things where you don't want to know because you don't want to know how scary it is so that you don't change the way you're living. But once I finally watched it, I think it's more about learning how to stay safe about it and educating yourself. Because regardless, I can't live without it. People can't live without their social media. It is our life in today how we live. You just need it in a way. So it's mainly about, you know, be aware of it. How can you take control in your own ways or how can you not let them take control of you? And after watching this documentary, I am trying to be more aware of it. So I think that's the greatest thing I did get from it. I didn't agree with, of course, everything in the documentary or love every part of it. But then there were some things I liked. But I think overall, my greatest takeaway was just kind of creating an awareness. Maddie, what did you think? So, yeah, so I agree with what you were saying as well. And with what Sarah was saying with how it was over-dramatized, though, at some points when the girl smashed the phone because she was so addicted. I will say I am addicted to my phone, but... I still can't have conversations with people, but I do notice that sometimes even when I, when I am with my friends and family and none of us have our phones on the table, it can get an awkward silence sometimes because I feel like our whole world revolves around what is happening online with the news or, oh, a new funny video came out, a trend. So it is sometimes hard not to mention those things. So they did kind of touch on that with that awkward silence at the beginning of that dinner. Yeah, I think they just went a little too far with it. But something else that I thought was interesting was how they talked about how the algorithm can make you believe something that is false. If they make you see it over and over and over again, how can it not be true? So you start to believe it because that is all you know. And I've thought about that before. And then it kind of gets me thinking, where can you even get trustworthy news anymore? Something else that kind of resonated with me as well was how it is harder for people to just have those conversations and find accurate news articles. Yeah, I think I like that you you both mentioned that you've got an addiction to your apps. You can't live without social media. She's addicted to your app. Is there anything that you've done personally 
to try to combat some of that addiction because we're aware of what they're doing. We know they're good at keeping us engaged and keeping us in those apps. Have you ever, you know, tried those so no social media challenges or anything like that? What have you guys done? I personally haven't done the no social media challenge. I remember when I was younger and I would get grounded, I would always want to be on my phone or see what was going on. But aside from that, I personally haven't done it. But I will say sometimes if I just don't want to be on my phone, I try to stay busy with other activities because then I will lose hours and hours and doing my own things. And then I realize, oh, I wasn't on my phone. And you kind of get an awareness. You don't always need to be on your phone. And I'll actually have friends get mad at me saying like, you suck at responding at texts and things like that. And I'm like, it almost makes me feel better that I'm not good at replying all the time because I am taking a break from my phone and I'm learning how to take a break here and there. So just staying busy does help me, I think, instead of deleting my app, because then eventually you're going to re-download it, and then it's what's the point of it. You know, it shows you can leave for a little bit, but it almost shows how much you need it more when you take that break. It just brings people back in. So I think a better balance is maybe you have your apps, but learn control in another way instead of deleting it. Yeah, I agree with that too. And also, like I said, I cannot not have social media. So I kind of do this little game where I give myself a certain amount of videos I can watch at one time. So if I'm scrolling through Instagram or TikTok, I'll give myself like 20 videos I can watch. That might seem like a lot to some people, but to me, it's not. So and then I will watch those 20 videos and then I will get off the app. Does it work all the time? No, but at least it kind of feels like to me, I can control it. And so I feel like I'm not wasting hours and hours on end, but I can still get that little funny dog video or maybe watching a content creator bake cookies with their kids and just kind of a little separation from what's happening in my day. Yeah, I like that. I think I kind of resonate with Chrisula saying when you find other activities to do, you find you're like, oh, I was spending a lot of time on my phone. I know for me personally, I joined a book club just so I was like, I would rather spend my time reading a book and connecting with people about those books instead of just seeing, well, I spent two hours reading. That would have been two hours on Instagram, just mindlessly scrolling, you know, just deeper and deeper into just nothingness and wasting time. And I like we kind of talked about before we started seeing that every Sunday, your iPhone will send you how much screen time you had for the week. And I personally, it's like a little accomplishment when you can see that it's been down for the week and you're like, oh my gosh, I did it. You know, it's like that. It's just a little accomplishment. But ever since I started reading, it's like 30 to 60% difference. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've spent so much time on my phone. It's ridiculous. And I think it helps. You know, there's sometimes where I'm listening to podcasts or audiobooks, and I won't really count that, but I like going into the, the battery section of the phone to see look at specifically my social media to see how much of my day did I waste on that? Because to me, it is just sort of my personal time. It's my alone time. I'm just trying to wind down, get some quiet time from the kids or something. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to give that to myself. But if I can see that I spent, you know, two, three, four hours on Instagram, I know that was time not spent with my kids or with my family or cleaning something or something more productive. So I, I agree with that. Just finding something else to kind of keep you busy is sort of that sense of control. You're like, oh yeah, I wasn't on my phone today. It kind of feels like a little bit of a cleansing in a way. It's time for a break for this message from our sponsor. Are you tired of big tech spying on you? MySudo is the world's only all-in-one app that gives you back control of your privacy. By creating digital profiles or pseudos, you can compartmentalize your online activities by setting up a unique phone number, email address, and handle for things like shopping, accessing free content, and using dating apps. This breaks the data trail linking back to your personal info, thus reducing your digital exhaust. Each suit also includes a private web browser with ad and tracker blocker. Want to stop companies from sharing data related to your transactions and spending habits? Set up a MySudo virtual card and bring peace of mind that your transactions are secure and private. 
To learn more, visit mysudo.com. That's mysudo.com. Stay private. So part of the documentary, it talks about how Gen Z is the first generation in history to get on social media by junior high. They've been training and conditioning this new generation that when they're uncomfortable or lonely, uncertain, afraid, they have a digital pacifier that is atrophying our ability to deal with that. So this whole generation is more anxious, more fragile, more depressed. They're less comfortable at taking risks. The number of people going on dates is dropping rapidly. And it even speaks to the astronomical increase in self-harm and suicides among teens in the last decade. So I sort of wanted to ask you, Chrisula and Maddie, how how have you, how, did you guys have phones in junior high? When did you get phones? Have you felt this way that the documentary talks about? Yeah, I definitely did. I got my first phone when I was in sixth grade, but it was a flip phone. And then I got my first iPhone when I got into junior high. And that's kind of when I started getting into social media because all my friends had Snapchat or Instagram. And I remember I downloaded Instagram just by myself. My parents didn't even know I downloaded it. And they didn't really fully even understand what it was themselves. So it's almost, I mean, now, of course, parents are more, you know, watching their kids, what they're downloading. But especially for my parents at the time, they didn't fully know. So I had Instagram is like seventh, eighth grade. And as far as I can remember, I've just been on it. And I definitely was more obsessed with it when I was in junior high, because that's almost when you're that age, it's how it defines you. Of course, when you get older, you can look back and be like, oh, that doesn't matter. But when you're that young, that is what defines you. You put filters on all of your pictures, even Snapchat, you know, you'll put a Snapchat filter and then you take it off and you're like, oh, I want that filter back on because it does. It enhances your natural features, but it's almost creating people to feel like they have to have one or they're not good enough themselves. Just like, you know, the documentary of the younger girl when she was putting herself edited or when she put the makeup on her, then all of her friends were saying, oh, you look so beautiful. And it's sad, but it is honestly creating all of us to feel that we need these things to pass or that we're good enough for social media. And now that I've gotten older, of course, I don't necessarily feel like that. Of course, at times I do because it's just how we have been trained. But definitely when I was younger, I was even more addicted to that and needing that self-worth through the editing apps or things like that. Yeah, I agree with that. But I had a little bit of different upbringing because I didn't have social media in high school. I had a phone in like seventh grade, but it was a flip phone as well. But I didn't get Instagram until around college. And so it was great for me after I knew that my parents were doing it for the better. But I also feel like I was a little left out in high school because I didn't know what was going on, the new trends or who was dating who and all of that stuff. But it kind of led me to get a big case of FOMO. I don't know if our listeners know what FOMO is, but it means fear of missing out. And it kind of actually made me crave social acceptance even more because I kind of was backtracking and trying to catch up to everyone who was following each other in high school and all the trends and how to make certain videos. And so I feel like it was good, but it also was bad because in the end, at the end of the day, social media isn't going away. So I ended up getting it later on. It's so interesting as a parent to kind of hear you guys talk about you had a phone and you didn't have a phone and to see how it affected each of you so differently. One of you had it so early and now you sort of don't care about it. You guys have both sort of craved this validation in a way. And I guess for me as a parent, I've just grown up seeing, I, I love the generation I was in because we didn't have iPhones in high school, anything like that. 
I only had a phone or at the end of junior high to communicate with my parents for dance and sports and stuff. But we and my friends have always said, we're not going to give our kids phones or, or they have it. They're going to have those gab phones or something where all they can do is call a couple numbers or just message their parents. There's super limit. But just sort of hearing both sides of it, it it's maybe finding a balance, you know, giving little kids those phone is great because they don't need cameras. They don't need to connect with the internet. But as they get older into junior high and high school, giving them a little bit of that freedom and that flexibility and finding a proper way to do that, you know, finding a safe way to do it, be involved with them, have the conversation so they don't feel like they have to hide anything. Rich, let's take it back a little bit to the documentary on the industries saying there's only two industries that call their customers users. Why don't you take that one over? Yeah, that one kind of stuck out too. <laughs> Illegal drugs and software. Those right, are the two that industries. Was, yeah, it's a strong statement. Yeah, that puts it in perspective. There was a part in the documentary where they kind of got into some evolutionary psychology and they mentioned that early humans, they lived in small social groups. And sure, they cared about what other people in that social group thought. But now we're in this world where there's 24-7 access globally. So you have people who can interact with you who you've never met and you don't know. And you have to wonder, is that healthy? You saw that part in there where the the girl is looking in the mirror and she's thinking about her appearance and you see her sitting there changing her filters and that's powerful. So when you think about those things, do you find yourself, I guess, Chrysola, Maddie, do you find yourself struggling with caring about people who are total strangers and that that actually changes your behavior or impacts you at least psychologically? I definitely did when I was younger in kind of junior high, high school more. I think when I was really kind of in the brunt of my social media phase of when I was really addicted to it. But as I've gotten older, I just I think when you get older, you just don't care about things that don't matter as much in different perspectives. But of course, you still are going to care to a degree depending the situation. But I always sometimes get mad at myself, like, why do I care what that person thinks? Because it will like I'll think about it in my sleep, like, oh, my gosh, or if something happens, you know, you constantly think about it or interactions with people that you have every day. It is interesting to think of how social media also, I mean, maybe that's getting into a different kind of conversation of it, but it changes people's social behaviors of how they even talk to people, communicate with people, you know, how they expect to be perceived by people. It's really interesting, but a lot of people don't have today, like manners, social manners because of it. And I do think, I mean, I was born in this generation where it's been a part of my life, but I do think I am aware to see that because I can see some people who have even less than I do. And then I wonder, oh my gosh, am I this bad too? And I hope not, but it is interesting to kind of see. And I know that was a little bit of a tangent because it's, it's just so many thoughts that come up with this. But Maddie, what do you think about it? Yeah, I think it's kind of like a domino effect because I say I don't care. I'm like, oh, I only care about what my friends think, you know, when they comment on your posts or videos and you're like, Wow, that makes me feel so good. But if that one person that you might not know as well says something good and it kind of boosts your mood and you're like, wow, if they notice me, I don't see them a lot. And they thought that I looked good in this post or I was funny. And I feel like that could also be bad because if there's a troll online that says something bad about your appearance or your personality, then that can also take a toll on you. So I know for me personally, I have private accounts. I have, especially over the last few years, have tailored my followers and who I choose to follow. It's sort of just this inner peace. Like, is this person and what they post, is it bringing me peace or am I getting upset about everything and vice versa? Are they commenting on things just to like rile me up? If it's just not bringing peace, I just unfollow them. We're sort of in that 
that day and age where you can just hit the unfollow button or, you know, block them or whatever. Do you guys have public accounts, private accounts? Do you feel like either one is helpful for you and sort of like your mindset? Yeah, I used to actually have a public account when I was younger because I also think of now I'm private, of course, and I'm more cautious of who I let follow me. But I also think it's it's kind of like, what's your goal on social media? Are you trying to become someone famous and get all these followers and meet all these people and have them all see your pictures? Because I genuinely have friends that want that and they're public and that's great for them. But if you don't want to do that and you kind of want to be more private and just have your select friends and things like that follow you, there's no point to be public because I'm constantly deleting random freaky accounts that try to follow me or message me. Yeah, I also feel like that as well. I used to be public and then, yeah, trolls took a toll on me. I can't do it. I don't know how content creators do it. And so now I am private, but it's still hard when a certain post you put on gets more likes than the other. You're like, what's different? What changed? And it starts getting in your head and you're that's why you post more because you you crave that social acceptance, like I said before. Let's take a quick break for this message from our sponsor. The global average cost of a data breach is nearly four and a half million dollars, but that's viewing it from a liability perspective. Today, privacy is a value proposition for software providers. When you develop a reputation for protecting customers' personal information, you don't just acquire new customers, you make them loyal. And Sato Platform is the world's premier cloud platform for providing developers with a menu of enterprise-ready SDKs and APIs that make integrating privacy solutions into your software so easy. Built for developers by developers, from identity wallets and password managers to virtual cards and secure encrypted communications, Sudo Platform has you covered. Go to market quickly with a privacy platform that is scalable, flexible, and secure. To learn more, visit sudoplatform.com. That's sudoplatform.com. There was one point in the documentary they talked about that the three main goals, I guess, of these big tech platforms who are following this attention economy model was engagement, growth. They talked about growth hacking a little bit. I won't get into that really. And then, of course, the third piece is the advertising where they're selling all of that data to brands who are basically guaranteed a successful result. But underlying all of this, of course, is still that engagement. The more I can get Sarah, Chrisula, Maddie on this platform, the more data I collect about you, the easier it is for me to predict what your next move is. And even to the extent where I can manipulate your behavior, which is incredibly creepy. And there's been experiments and studies that have been done. We won't go into that here. We've mentioned them in past episodes where they clearly can take different approaches on the platform, like for, for instance, Facebook, and then they can impact your emotional state in the offline world. So it's clear we talked about, you know, Sarah mentioned Pokemon Go in the last episode that we did. So as we kind of wrap this up, I know I mentioned earlier, I felt like there was a lot of hyperbole throughout this documentary. I mean, it did seem like some of these individuals who are so-called tech experts were kind of self-absorbed and maybe turning themselves into heroes when they really weren't, because again, they did work for these platforms. There was one quote that really got my attention. It was the data scientist don't think I captured her name. Yeah, I did. Kathy O'Neill. And she's the author of the book Weapons of Math Destruction. And she said, quote, algorithms are opinions embedded in code. And so essentially, AI is not something that just creates itself, right? There are humans that really put these equations together and they put them together to basically rig the system for whatever outcome they want. So when we think about AI, when we think about all these algorithms, In the context of big tech, the ultimate goal here is I need you engaged on the platform. 
And then I take that data and I go sell it to a brand who's willing to pay me lots of money for those results. Right. And they were talking about how this AI and all these computers, they're just in ginormous warehouses and they're sort of self-learning at this point. And they said there's pretty much only a handful of people that know how they're created and know what they're doing. And these were all created by people. And so it is sort of a choice. It's you guys can make a change if you really wanted to. You could go in there and change the code, but there's sort of just, there's no fiscal need for them to do that, that it's working for them. And and, and really, again, because this is a privacy-themed podcast, the, the point is, there's a lot of psychology and behavioral aspects to this to this documentary, but ultimately, you just have to be cognizant of your data is more than just your email and your phone number and your physical address and your name and all those typical things that we think about data. It's kind of your surface level, beginner level data. What these tech platforms are interested in is really all that behavioral data that you're not really turning over, if you will. It's just being captured and they tie that to your profile and they're building these elaborate predictive models on you. Well, Maddie, Grisula, Sarah, I mean, obviously this documentary has a wide range of topics that covers, uh, and I think it probably evokes uh, also a wide range of emotions. Any closing thoughts before we wrap this up? I guess my closing thoughts are I'm not going to, again, live without social media necessarily. So I, I think the best thing that you can do is just be smart and aware about how you're using it. And just honestly, just awareness is my greatest closing thought. And I know there was one quote that stuck with me. And they said, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. Because we think, you know, these apps are all free, but they're getting their money through us when we buy these things and see all these ads. So I think the greatest thing we could do is just have awareness and how we can be smarter about how we're using it. And to make sure that these are our thoughts, you know, we actually do want to buy these things or look at these things. Make sure that they're coming from you. And I think that's where the awareness comes from. Yeah, to go off that, I think that social media can still be used for good like staying in contact with friends and family, spreading awareness for movements, learning new tips and tricks, and even just watching funny videos. Social media has the ability to unite us if we use it correctly, but it's just down to how we want to use it. So at the, at the end of the day, I don't think big tech will stop doing what they are doing. And since it will probably never go away, I think we need to educate ourselves and others on how to use it properly and just to live in the present and focus on what is important in our lives. That was great. I like having you guys on here, having some Gen Zs to talk to that have grown up with this stuff. I know I'm a millennial, but it's still it's so different generation by generation. So I appreciate you guys coming in and sharing how it was growing up with all this. Well, that's going to do it for this episode and our two part series on surveillance capitalism. In our next episode, we celebrate Data Privacy Week, delving into the privacy app, MySudo. Explaining how creating digital identities helps to minimize your digital exhaust and breaks the link to your personally identifiable information. Until next time, don't forget, privacy is a human right.